This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Ayala Levine. Uh, I'm an architectural historian. I've recently became an assistant professor in the art history department at Northwestern University. I graduated from Columbia in 2015 uh, from the history and theory PhD program in architecture. I'm a peculiar bird, I think, because I didn't have any architectural or history background. So I had to be taught, <laughs> I had to be disciplined into these two uh, different disciplines while I was here. I started off uh, with literature and the arts in my bachelor degree, and then in my MA I did cultural studies. And uh, increasingly I became more and more interested in, in the built environment. It started with public spaces, with monuments, more, more sculptural objects, and then it became a real interest in architecture and urbanism. And in a sense, I needed to be grounded in an art discipline that has a, a public weight, much more than literature and the arts. This is at least how I felt back then, that architecture really shapes people's lives and people really do relate to architecture in, in every aspect of their uh, being. So, um, so instead of talking theoretically about the potential of art to you know, radicalize and revolutionize our ways of thought, I needed the, the, the material groundings, the economic and social groundings of architecture to, to grapple with. As a, this, this has become my real interest, the, the way architecture as an art is so bounded by material conditions. It was specifically theories of postmodernism that went and looked at architecture as the exemplar. So we used to study those theories in literature and culture studies. Uh, so I became increasingly aware of architecture as, as one of the tools, or analytical tools, to, to speak theory also. Together, the combination of uh, professors here was exactly what I needed when I came in. Well, Reinhold Martin is... Uh, the obvious example, but uh, also Felicity Scott and Gwendolyn Wright. Gwendolyn Wright for her studies of colonial architecture and Felicity Scott for her studies of spatial politics. And I should note know that Mary McLeod took me under her uh, watch, <laughs> in a sense, um, into history and into architecture to make sure that I will understand the, the very basics, the methodological basics before I, you know, going to my own interests. So I, I owe her this crucial molding <laughs> of myself. It was good to have that kind of a methodological backbone. I arrived with the understanding that I could only speak about Israeli architecture because I know nothing about architecture or nothing about, uh, you know, I, I was very um, timid about what I, I can do in this program. but. Uh, very soon I was uninterested in talking about only Israeli architecture and because I was interested in Israel through the post-colonial lens then the work of Israeli architects in post-colonial Africa became a way for me to expand my research understand Israel in a completely different context which is the third world context and uh, surprisingly as a as a country that 
self-fashioned itself as post-colonial to um, create those solidarities with African states. And now I don't consider myself at all as a, as a person who studies Israeli architecture, but one that studies modern architecture in Africa. And my next project will be focused on American uh, architects and landscape architects and urban planners who worked in uh, Africa. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot that I can say about it. Um, it was first of all, it is about competition. It was about staging Israeli expertise as different than others. So it doesn't mean that it's essentially different than others, as much as it, it was fashioned this way. And when it per, is performed this way, then it, it becomes this way. That's, that's kind of the logic that I operate with when I look at that period and the many actors involved in that period in uh, development projects. Israelis self-fashioned themselves as, first of all, as having more um, applicable knowledge because they are not working through uh, textbooks. They're not bringing theory and knowledge that is based in the hegemonic centers and just apply it in Africa, but they already have experience and expertise in applying this textbook's knowledge to the Middle East. So they are already bringing their expertise in translation rather than expertise in textbook knowledge. So this is one thing. The second thing is that because it is not textbook knowledge, it is performed as a very underground, egalitarian kind of method of working with the people, teaching them, not gaining uh, monetary capital out of it as much as more uh, social capital, diplomatic capital. Other things that interest me is race, and this is what I'm going to speak about tonight. There is one scholar, Chaim Yacobi, a geographer, political geographer, who works on the same topic, and he claims that Israel whitened itself via their projects in Africa. But I argue that they blackened themselves in order to portray themselves as, as similar to Africans. So the question of race, I argue in the talk today, race and environment cannot be considered as a colonial thinking in the case of Israelis, but one that brings on the uncertainties and anxieties of the degenerate Jew in Europe and his regeneration as a new Zionist man in Palestine to, it brings those sensitivities to the treatment of race and the environment in Africa, in Nigeria specifically. You know, in this kind of history, it's hard to say how much of it was ideology or real practice on the ground, diplomatic practice, uh, the realpolitik versus uh, the performance, the rhetorical performance of diplomacy and construction companies. But I... I, having met people from that generation in a few countries in Africa, I think that there was a special appeal to this ethos. Uh, and the name of Solel Bonnet, the construction company that brought all these Israeli architects to Africa, to many countries in Africa, the name is still known and remembered. It, it, it has a certain aura to it. So... This is as much a story about construction or even more a story about construction rather than architecture. 
And I think there's much more to do with this research when looking at the construction company itself and how they exercise or not the ethos that they were uh, promoting. But I focused on the architecture side of it, of course. In 1973, after the October War, most of the countries in Africa stopped relations with Israel. So some of the projects continued, like the project that I'm going to speak about today, if a university campus, uh, because it was already in motion and the construction company was still there and uh, the re- the way it was structured, it was just that that construction company has privatized its operation throughout the years, already in the 60s. So as a private company, it could still continue working. Um, but the ethos was, uh, yeah, the ethos was short-lived. It's, you can say that in practice, it was valid only until 64, um, when the co- this construction company changed its method of operation. But, but you can look at it in, in general terms as develop, development turning into humanitarian aid, becoming a, a project of NGOs and corporations rather than a bilateral or multilateral relations between countries. So uh, this is a larger story. It's not only the story about why Israel has changed relations. And of course, after 67, there was more and more pressure from the Arab League on African countries to recognize uh, Israel's status as an oppressor rather than a post-colonial nation. I'm interested in knowledge production in the back and forth, the movement between the U.S. and uh, Africa and also the Middle East, many of the companies that I'll be looking at have worked in the Middle East where oil money was uh, abandoned. My interest at least relates to the way the city-country relationship has changed. If in the US, uh, this was past the time of urban renewal, suburbanization, and uh, the pastoral ideal, was a continuous thread in uh, American history. And you had the uh, discourse, the rise of uh, consciousness of ecology and preservation and Earth Day uh, and all that. In Africa, they saw, I don't want to say a virgin land, uh, which is the usual trope, but they saw an opportunity to intervene in processes of industrialization and urbanization in a way that will preempt many of the ills of the modernization of agriculture and industrialization in the US. So in a way, it was an an ecological approach to look at the city countryside as two entities that can be harmonized and also um, lead to economic development in a way that will be sustainable, manageable. So it is really about managing the environment, managing populations, territories, resources, labor, and it is the, the scale is territorial rather than specific to a city or one village or one building. They are all intertwined. The American project is huge. Uh, There are many archives that I need to explore, so it it will be a book, but in many, many years. First, I I need to publish the 
dissertation as a book, uh, something I'm working on at the moment. Um, somebody once suggested that I'll make a comparison between the two cases, but each of them is so uh, unique and so full in and of itself that I, I won't like to jeopardize that. So each deserves its own story. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with Arc Daily. We launched a new series of podcasts called Constructing Practice, in which young architects from around the world speak about their motivations, challenges, and what it means to start a new practice in their respective context. Look for it on iTunes and find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.